Welcome to Neo Academia, where the walls of the ivory tower are shifting. I'm your host, Natasha Mott, and this week I had a lively debate about academic freedom with a friend from the Heterodox Academy Writers Group, John K. Wilson. John is the author of eight books, co-organizer of the Chicago Book Expo and the Evanston Literary Festival, and co-editor of academeblog.org. Neo Academia is possible first and foremost because of you. I appreciate your support, and if you love what we're doing here, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for behind-the-scenes footage and much more bonus content. Thank you for sharing your most valuable resource, your attention. And if you're interested in making better use of your attention, I got you. Neo Academia is also possible through support from Readocracy. Readocracy is on a mission to save the internet by making how we inform ourselves matter. So they've created a first-of-its-kind technology that rewards people for consuming high-quality content. Readocracy makes the content you consume count, awarding points, badges, LinkedIn upgrades, and insights into your information diet. These insights are like a Fitbit for your mind. They can help you understand how your information diet is affecting how you think and feel. Readocracy has won awards and backing from Mozilla and Betaworks, and is used by curious minds at Stripe, Cisco, Zoom, and over 30 other top companies and schools. Neo Academia is proud to be sponsored by Readocracy and has a series of collections curated by me and each of our guests on Readocracy.com. And for access to the Neo Academia resource collections, head over to theorygang.io forward slash newsletter for this episode's show notes. Now let's explore. How are you? Have you been going to the the group formerly known as the Heterodox Academy writers? I missed the last few, so I don't know what, what's happened to some of them. But... Do you ever feel kind of weird about being non-faculty in that group? I feel weird all the time, so it doesn't matter at all. <laughs> Have you gotten anything published on the blog? They actually invited me to do a back and forth piece after I'd written a thing about survey research on free speech on campus. That was very interesting, very, very well done, but they do seem to be very selective. They do a lot of editing for something that is frankly not a high profile outlet, they're very selective and careful and all these other things that you wouldn't expect. I want, you know, free and open flowing debate of people just posting crazy things. And that's the way it was for a while. And I think that's in some ways a good way for these kind of obscure blogs to, to operate. I'd rather see that, but you know, all these people, including the AUP, they start to get worried about, oh, somebody's going to write something controversial and that doesn't fit with our official positions. And whereas I think these blogs and, and journals should operate like universities do. If some professor says something crazy, well, that's the professor's opinion. It doesn't represent the institution. It doesn't represent the journal. Don't worry so much about it. Yeah, I totally agree. But I mean, now we have Substack and that's kind of why I started this podcast is because I'm finding... <laughs> Fuck the institutions. People are saying really interesting stuff outside of the institutions. And I think this is unique. And so I wanted to talk to you because you and I, like I said, we're the only ones in the Heterodox Academy writing group that are not faculty. And I think in some ways this gives us an interesting perspective. A lot of times I'll say something in that group discussion and I feel like I get kind of like, huh, I didn't think of it like that because there's this like insular nature of academics. What do you think? Sure, there's a certain amount of elitism in any academic enterprise and institutions, and I wish they would get beyond that. But, you know, I think there, there's a pretty wide range of opinion, even within Heterodox Academy, as well as other institutions. So it's always interesting to have a kind of outside voice, someone who's, you know, looks at some of these academic debates, but brings something new because they spend some time and 
outside of them. And so they're not attached to a lot of these perspectives. And, and when, when I'm able to get invited or invite myself to participate in something, then I enjoy bringing that kind of perspective and, and challenging sort of the norms of the conversation. Yeah, I like that about you too. It's funny because I wrote a piece on UATX when the UATX thing was coming out and I sent it to the group for review. And I actually was reading something you wrote about the 1915 academic freedom and tenure principles. And it's so funny because I don't even think I realized you were in the group or I don't think I realized I was reading something you wrote. And until you sent something back and I was like, oh shit, that's, that's that guy. It was so funny because I guess there's not that many people who write and think about the the idea of academic freedom. It's a pretty small circle, right? It's a small circle in some ways in terms of the academic experts. I come from the background, I have a PhD in higher education. So I study this sort of thing and my dissertation was about academic freedom. That That's pretty rare actually. There's not, higher education is not a large field and very few of the people with it care about academic freedom. It's mostly you know, it's a field of former administrators training future administrators. And so academic freedom tends to be the a subject they don't want to talk about. But there's an enormous literature, of course, about academic freedom that's written by amateurs, you know, very brilliant professors in other fields who find themselves looking at academic freedom out of personal experience, out of a deep interest in it because it's something that's deeply attached to what academics do for a living. So you have this field that's basically guided by extremely brilliant amateurs who don't really know necessarily a lot about the history and that unless they really study it deeply. It's a very interesting intellectual field because it brings together people from all across the university who care about academic freedom, sciences, math, literature. You know, the part of me that's an expert at academic freedom would like to say, leave it to the experts. But of course, that's part of the problem when people start to take that position. And so in my view, it's a really important subject. And so it's valuable to have these outside non-academic perspectives from the tenured professors who are a lot more prestige than I do. I think it goes without saying why academic freedom is important, but I think a lot of people don't realize how important it is especially today and in like the United States, for example, like if you go to another country, they might really understand the importance of academic freedom, especially one where it's like a nascent democracy or not even as much of a democracy as what we have here. They're like, oh yeah, we need academic freedom because you're able to protect the interests of, you know, everyone by studying them and not being governed by someone. But what do you think is the most important aspect of academic freedom right now? Difficult to say. I, I, I mean, it, from my perspective, there's always someone coming out and saying, this is a terrible crisis in academic freedom. I've been, you know, writing about this for 30 years. I've been hearing it my, my whole adult life. And especially since I look at the history of these things, I tend to be a little skeptical of these kind of alarmist claims that it's never been worse because quite often it has been worse in terms of academic freedom, but I'm beginning to come around to the idea that there are some new threats out there that are particularly alarming to academic freedom, primarily because you're seeing a lot of the defenders of academic freedom sort of disappearing. You have an attack from the right, conservatives who are increasingly going to legislators to say, let's get rid of tenure, let's get rid of this academic freedom. 
Then you have on the left, you know, free speech and academic freedoms are tools of the right-wing racist bigots. And then you have in the center, which I think really gets ignored as a great threat to academic freedoms, you have this vast army of administrators that is increasingly occupying universities who don't really have academic freedom, who don't have a deep attachment to academic freedom, who see academic freedom as a barrier to getting things done and whose jobs are to, in some cases, go in and investigate and punish people for their views. So you have the culmination of these three different kinds of threats to academic freedom that are really starting to grow. And that, I think, is an unusual and a unique new threat to academic freedom. It's not any one of these particular things, but it's the combination of all of them that I think is the greatest threat to academic freedom today. Even though I'm tempted to avoid those kind of alarmist, ahistorical arguments, I think there is a, a unique peril we're seeing towards academic freedom today. Typical thinker, always hedging. <laughs> One thing I found with transitioning into this podcasting world, the hedging doesn't go over well. Nobody wants to hear you hedge. They want to hear, well, are we in trouble or are we not? And I think that in and of itself, the urgency of everybody to want to know and this like information crisis, it's kind of a threat too, isn't it? Like everyone wants definitive answers and certainty. I don't know. I see that as a huge, not even a, a threat, but kind of a barrier because it really directs what we study and how we study it and how we talk about it. Well, I, I don't mind that the certainty, I'm a big advocate of certainty in, in lots of ways. And I've written books, for example, on, on Rush Limbaugh. So I listen to a lot of right-wing talk radio. I'm very familiar with the idea of people explicitly presenting their views and it, and it doesn't bother me. I think there's a certain value to it as well as a danger. But I think that the bigger danger in, in terms of academic freedom and free speech on campus is not so much the, the hedging, it's the hypocrisy. That you have people who really want to be told that their view is not a threat to academic freedom, but their views are being repressed and they're vulnerable to attacks on academic freedom. And so the right wants to hear about conservatives being censored, the left wants to hear about leftists being censored, but nobody wants to hear a comprehensive viewpoint that you have a lot of different threats to academic freedom going on at the same time. And that you don't have to choose, oh, is the major threat conservative? Is it from the center? Is it from the left? Is it from the right? You can say it's coming from all of these different directions. And then, of course, you get accused of both sidesism by both sides. But, <laughs> well, you know, that that's sort of inevitable in this kind of framework. And so I get cited and quoted a lot by people on the right and by the left. But they're very selective in when they want to use my work to support their positions, I think. Right. Well, obviously, this whole uh, Stop Woke Act was just struck down in, by a federal judge. It was Stop Wrongs Against Our Kids and Employees Act. And this was, you know, Ron DeSantis's uh, leap at trying to prevent wokeism or critical race theory in school. But have you actually read this legislation, like what, what it actually says? I glanced at it. I don't have it off the top of my head, but probably because it was, it was really bad in the sense of my views. And you have a lot of people coming out against it from FIRE and other groups who are friendly to people on the right who are not opposed to legislation on campus issues, but who thought this was a really bad approach to doing. And it was done basically for political reasons, not out as an expectation that this would actually take effect and be supported. I think 
Ron DeSantis is people fully expected this to be overturned by the courts, but what they wanted was, you know, that the approach that here we are, we're, we're taking on the left. And, and that I think was the reason why it was done. Well, okay. So my main thought, I mean, there's a few things in it that actually don't read that terrible when you read them. They're like, they want to not force anybody to take trainings, you know, state employees that say that they are bigots just because of the color of their skin or, you know, that they are inherently racist. So that's, that's part of this. The other part is they don't want to separate kids based on gender for race or gender specific education. They also talk about unequal spending on sports. So a lot of these things I think are filler to try and make the legislation not sound so bad. But then the big part was that K through 20 public education should be prohibited from any type of education that espouses or advances racism or that one race or sex is morally superior. And so a lot of this doesn't read terrible. It reads like people trying to prevent discrimination and racism. I was like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. But I think the big thing is that it's K through 20. If it were just K through 12, I think they would have left it well alone. But they've entered the realm of the university by expanding it through K through 20. It's possible, you know, there's a very common idea that, oh, well, universities are exceptional and different. They have to have these protections, but you can suppress anything you want in K through 12. I don't agree with that. I, I believe actually in the concept of academic freedom for K through 12 teachers, which is actually a very old outmoded idea that was abandoned long ago. But, uh, you know, you had John Scopes during the Scopes monkey trial in the 1920s. After he was found guilty, he gave up and made a speech and said, this violates my academic freedom as a teacher. And I think he was right. I think, you know, bans on evolution, bans on critical race theory, they're terrible ideas pedagogically. They're worse when they're applied to universities, but they're also bad when they're applied in the K through 12 setting, that we should have protections for teachers at all levels that we shouldn't be afraid of exposing anyone to divisive concepts or, or dangerous ideas, even when they're small children. And, and so I don't think we should completely abandon K through 12, even while we acknowledge that there's a greater danger when we suppress free speech and academic freedom in the university. Well, you said you wanted to argue about stuff, so here we go. <laughs> yeah, this idea that you have that academic freedom should be protected in K through 12 as well. I don't agree. First of all, on the grounds that children are very impressionable and they don't have all their critical faculties. I think, a, you know, once you reach 18, you've got a lot more life behind you than if you're five. And that's indoctrination when you're young. So I don't think our public school system should just be teaching any old thing that they want to teach. So that's first of all. And second of all, there's some kind of elitism with academic freedom that a professor has, right, that they have earned versus a K through 12 teacher. I hate to say this, and I know I'm going to get hate for it, but they'll hire any old bum off the street pretty much to teach K through 12. I'm not kidding. And they pay them, what, $5 an hour? It's insane. You're extending this very privileged aspect of academic freedom to just about anybody? I don't know about that. I would disagree with you on that. And, and what you have is actually a very common thing about the issue of elitism. I, I think we need an idea of academic freedom that's in some ways less elitist. And that's been how it's been moving in the history of academic freedom in the past century under the AUP. For example, 
originally the idea of academic freedom, I think it was the idea of, oh, it's about expertise. It's only reserved for certain elite people who are tenured professors eligible for tenure. And the AUP for a long time has been working to try and expand those notions to protect adjunct faculty who are actually the ones making $5 an hour, not teachers. They make more than that. But the adjunct faculty are, are the ones where anybody off the street is with a master's degree becomes a college professor, but they don't have the same protections of academic freedom. And the EUP has worked to protect those freedoms. They've also worked to protect the freedoms of graduate student instructors to say, if you're the instructor of a class, even if you're a graduate student, you are protected by academic freedom. And so this idea that academic freedom is about protecting academic expertise is I think actually something we need to get over that what's important is not the expertise of the professors, not about protecting this elite group. It's about the educational work of an institution, of a university. In some ways, everybody should have academic freedom at a university. Uh, we have special areas of academic freedom protection for the professors and especially the tenured professors, but it ought to be the case that staff members at a university aren't fired for expressing their political views, that students aren't dismissed for having the wrong perspective, that we need to have these kind of freedoms throughout a university because of the nature of what a university is. I think we shouldn't be talking about academic freedom as something that's exclusively reserved for universities. It's the model that's especially important at universities, but it should be a model throughout our whole society. Uh, we should have journalists who have the freedom to express themselves, who don't get fired for tweeting the wrong thing. Employees of corporations shouldn't get fired for criticizing their bosses. Then we should have standards of tenure in all fields that evaluate people and give them certain protections once they've established themselves. I think that the model of academia in terms of academic freedom and tenure, this is a model for the entire society. It's especially important in academia, but it should be applied in K through 12, in corporate America, in all aspects of our lives, because these ideas of free speech and intellectual freedom are, are important and they're valuable. I can't say I disagree with you <laughs> because I do agree. And it's interesting to me, you started out talking about it as a function of the university as kind of um, you're protected by the halo of the university. But I was thinking about it for exactly what you said, everyone else who's outside of the university and wants to think about things. And I think you're absolutely right. It should be extended out and radiate out from kind of the university type thinking and academic type thinking. But the question is, where does it stop? It's like the argument of, oh, I identify as a woman today to avoid this or to gain access to that. Well, what if I just say something really awful and I'm like, I'm just being an academic, you know? Well, that's what academics sometimes do. They say awful things. And the idea is that academic freedom protects them. Uh, I live in Evanston near Northwestern where there's a long, for many, many years, there have been efforts to fire engineering professor, now retired, uh, who is a Holocaust denier. And for years and years and years, Northwestern refused to fire him. They, they said he's perfectly good at teaching engineering. He has tenure. He's not going to be fired for his extramural utterances, his views about that. And the issue of extramural utterances has been, is really a core idea of academic freedom in the history of academic freedoms in America. And in many ways, it represents what is uniquely American about academic freedom, the 
hopefully spreads around the world. But before 1915, when sort of the AUP, the American Association of University Professors, is founded, the idea of academic freedom, it was an idea of academic expertise. You were protected as a teacher and as a researcher within your academic expertise. And this is the old German 19th century concept of Lehrfähigkeit, that, that you had the freedom to teach, but there was no freedom, political freedom in Germany. It was about the freedom of professors within their academic expertise. They weren't allowed to criticize the government or criticize the university or express their views and have them protected. They only had freedom within their limited realm of academic expertise within the university. And the idea of the AUP and the 1915 Declaration of Principles really alters that. It defines academic freedom as teaching, research, and extramural utterances. And the idea is that professors need to be able to speak freely out in public because that's how the public benefits from hearing their ideas. The research doesn't mean much unless they're able to influence the wider public sphere. And so this protection of extramural utterances is to my mind, the real core concept of academic freedom is what virtually all of the cases involving academic freedom for the past century have been about. Punishing people for being members of the Communist Party or for criticizing the government or expressing offensive ideas. And that's fundamentally the core notion of academic freedom is that you shouldn't be fired for having some offensive view that you express outside, that you should be judged on your academic quality. And, and that is the core idea of extramural utterances, but it means protecting people who say and think horrible things within the university. There's a lot of overlap with the First Amendment, right? But the First Amendment doesn't necessarily protect your job. So the concept of academic freedom is to protect your career in research. But if I just go out on Twitter and start talking about Holocaust denial type stuff, that should be covered under the First Amendment in terms of like, you know, government prosecution, but it doesn't cover me in terms of my employer. So what you're saying, if everyone had academic freedom, no one could be canceled. It's not that no one could be, because even in, in universities today, people get canceled, people get fired, people have their academic freedom violated. It's an ideal, but it's not something that's always protecting them. And the distinction between the First Amendment and academic freedom, you have to remember academic freedom being established in 1915 before the First Amendment means anything. There are no Supreme Court cases upholding First Amendment rights. In essence, what the idea of academic freedom is, is the idea that there should be this carve out within universities for academics to have freedom of speech. And academic freedom is in some ways a subset of this concept of free speech. And so the fact that later on the Supreme Court begins to recognize that and protect free speech as a First Amendment right, academic freedom as a special concern of the First Amendment, that protects faculty at public universities, but not at private universities. But private universities still have uphold academic freedom as this, as this concept. And academic freedom is simultaneously broader than free speech and more restrictive than free speech. It's broader than ideas of free speech in the sense that you get to keep your job, even at a private university, even if you say something offensive, which the First Amendment doesn't protect. But okay. it's narrower than free speech because you don't have the right to say anything and are therefore entitled to an academic job. You have to meet academic criteria in order to be 
admitted as a professor and you're hired based on your academic qualities. So there's not just in case anybody off the street gets to be a professor and gets these protections. It's a narrow right reserved for those who are selected to have these academic expertise. But it's not then limited to their expressions of academic expertise. It protects them in what they say anyway. Mm. This concept of academic freedom was first developed to protect academics from institutional persecution. But I don't think institutions need to persecute people because the mob will do it for you. There's no way to protect people from the mob at this point. So like your professor at, at Northwestern, whether or not he gets fired, it doesn't really matter because everybody hates him. So. Oh, I, I completely disagree with that. The fact that you don't get fired or, or get fired is really important to a lot of people. It makes a huge amount of difference. Being hated, you know, anybody can be hated. Being hated is no big deal. There are certain elements of being hated that can be alarming when it comes up to forms of death threats, of harassment, these kind of things that can be discouraged as well as regulated. But the issue of, oh, the mind, the mob hates you. You know, lots of people on Twitter are hated by a mob of people. Uh, Donald Trump is the most hated man in America, but he revels in it. He enjoys it. And it certainly doesn't affect his career in some sense. Being hated is not the issue. And the power of the mob, if the mob is just annoying you and calling you mean things on Twitter, nobody really cares about the mob that. Where the mob gets important, at least in my view, is when the mob can affect your career, is when it can get you fired. Okay. And those decisions aren't made by a mob. Those decisions are made by largely centrist administrators at the university. But they are largely swayed by the mob. Look at what happened at Evergreen College, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I know this is like old stuff and Brett right. Weinstein's like public enemy number, you know, 87 or whatever at this point. But they went to the administration and the, and the administration buckled to the mob. It's actually a little bit more complicated than you think of the case of Brett Weinstein and Evergreen State. Certainly there were leftists calling for him to be fired. The university did not fire him. The university didn't really punish him. What happened was he sued the university for not doing enough to protect him, which is pretty much a bogus lawsuit. But the university then agreed to a settlement. Basically mm -hmm. they paid him to leave to achieve some calm and quiet, which it's understandable why he would take that. To me, it's very disturbing when the universities do that. They shouldn't be paying people who are controversial to leave. By the way, there was a, a left-wing professor at Evergreen State who was a harsh critic of Weinstein and a, a strong supporter of the students who were going after him, who was also paid to leave. So. If you're going to say that, oh, well, look, the university paid someone who was attacked by left-wingers and other things happened at Evergreen State. There were actual bomb threats from conservatives who were upset at wokeism. So you can say there were a lot of pressures on the university to do a lot of things and the university certainly didn't respond to them very well, but the university didn't actually suppress anyone's right. Well, but that's what I mean. And maybe I'm thinking through this as we're talking, but what I mean is that the university can't fire you for your viewpoint, but they can do a lot of shit that's going to really make it hard for you to have a career there. You and I have talked about the professor who came on uh, Zoom and called, what did he call all of his students? Like you maggots or something? 
what did he call them? <laughs> I forget exactly. New what... vectors of of, of oh. disease. Yeah. He got paid to leave as well, right? They were like, get yeah. the fuck out of here and don't ever talk about this again. Yes. And, and those kind of settlements are disturbing. But it's important to note that these are things that centrist administrators choose to do. The analogy I would make is to witch burnings. The extremists on the left and the right are the ones lighting the bonfires, but it's the centrist administrators who are deciding whether the witches are going to burn or not, whether they're going to keep their jobs or get fired or get paid to leave. Those are decisions made by the centrist administrators, and, and frankly, the mob doesn't really necessarily matter to them. Why do you keep calling the administrators centrist? Are you saying that there are no left-wing administrators? There are no right-wing well, administrators? There are certainly left-wing administrators, and overall, if you look at the entire apparatus of the administration, they lean to the left. Lots of those are sort of functionaries, people, low-level administrators, not the ones really in charge. If you look at the people in charge, though, they are sort of carefully chosen. The presidents of the university, for example, are carefully chosen right. to avoid extreme positions. It's very hard to find a president of a university who's a Trumpist or someone who supports uh, the BDS movement against Israel. They are carefully chosen as people who avoid taking extremes. And so that's why I call them the sort of centrist. They're also in their roles. They may have personal views that are liberal or conservative. Honey, they are often liberal. But in their roles, their role is to adopt this kind of centrist role of maintaining the university and protecting the university from various threats. And so you can have places like Boise State University, where the president of the university is uh, Marlene Trump, is a liberal, comes, I think, from a women's studies background. But she basically did the will of conservative Republican legislators in suspending a class where there was an accusation of misconduct that offended a conservative student. Even though it was all based on a hoax, she was incredibly active in suspending this class to protect the university from budget cuts and retaliation from Republican legislators. So what was even the hoax? The hoax was that a Republican legislator whose name is still being concealed by the university said that he had a, a Zoom recording of a class where a conservative student was forced to apologize for being white and was reduced to tears and all of these things. And it was completely made up. They had this huge investigation, a fishing expedition looking for anything that happened. And they found what had happened in the class was a conservative student had referred to the professor's ideas as stupid. And other students in the class on, on the Zoom started saying, you're not supposed to call people, there's sort of classroom guidelines to protect conservatives, frankly. You're not supposed to call people stupid or insult them in that. And, and the conservative student got upset. She felt she was being misunderstood. The professor came to her defense and she wasn't calling me stupid. She was calling her ideas stupid. But the conservative student was upset, started crying and left the call. The professor followed up, made sure she, she was okay. And the student was perfectly happy with how the professor had dealt with this. But somehow the story of this got out and got misinterpreted, got to a legislator who then claimed to have seen this recording when in fact he hadn't. There was no recording. And basically pushed this university to investigate it, thinking that something would come out of it. Nothing was found. But you had this enormous thing where the... 55 sections of the class because they didn't know which class this had happened in because it hadn't happened. 
So they suspended all 55 sections of this class for eight days and then banned any interaction between the students and the professors, banned class discussions for the rest of the semester, all to, to try and protect students from this, this hoax, from this thing that never happened. And that again is terms of the power of conservative Republicans in Idaho. They already had their budgets cut to get rid of diversity, but this was all happening while the legislature was in session and about to vote on budgets for the next year. So you had in many ways, these liberal administrators who are forced to respond to conservative forces. At the but isn't it more law. about money and purse strings at that point? Money is a huge factor in doing in these kind of things that universities respond to wealthy donors, to legislators when they're the source of the money, as well as to public relations, the fear that that will happen. And so money drives a lot of that, but that's true of the mob. You know, university presidents aren't really afraid of people saying bad things about on them on Twitter. They're concerned about their budgets being cut to donors withdrawing right. donations. Those are ultimately the threats bad publicity can have. That's really what drives administrators. And it's obviously something that comes from the left and the right. The mobs on Twitter are more often from the left, but what really matters is where the money is. And that can come from any direction. If the mm -hmm. university feels that its reputation is being threatened. That's an interesting perspective. And I think about it in terms of kind of pop culture, what's happening with Kanye, where it's very public what he said. And also, I wonder if he had said something a little bit more intelligent other than going, what, what did he say? DEFCON 3 on Yes, yeah, he doesn't know what DEFCON means. Right. He thinks it's DEFCON. So it that's great. Was great. <laughs> yeah. So, but I wonder if he had said, if he had said that appropriately um, or a little bit more intelligible if it would have been the same reaction, but that was all a show to me to express that kind of speech. But I mm -hmm. think the same kind of thing happens in the university as well. It's just a little bit more articulate and it's a little bit more behind closed doors and all these things happen as well. It's all performative is what I'm trying to say. Well, there's nothing wrong with performances. I'm all in favor of people being performative. I'm in favor, frankly, of people shaming other people. Same. You know, but social shaming is, in some ways, the ideal. It's the form of counter-speech you do so that you don't need to censor people. It's the way you can get people to change their views and change their values and critique them without needing the, the force of censorship. So it's not the shaming that's the problem, it's when the shaming has a mechanism for repression that goes along with it. And that's my concern. I think we should have more shame. I think- Me uh, too, we should be in all the time. Shame all you want, but when you're shaming, don't say, I want this guy fired, I want this guy banned. To say instead, this is what's wrong and this is what's right. That's the kind of shame I think we, we ought to have. The problem is there is no sector that is immune from the requirement of attention these days. It's an attention economy. So if you say, stop paying attention to this person today, it's analogous to saying, stop paying them. So that's the problem well, with shaming. Well, that's not what I, I wouldn't say stop paying attention to this person. I say keep pay a lot of attention to this person's stupid, bigoted ideas. But then that only accelerates their career. This is what I'm saying. Like attention is a currency. In the university, I think it's slow to adopt this, but it's becoming more and more. You're seeing like superstar lecturers and professors arise. 
but the university seems uniquely immune to this, unless you're on the fringes. I think in people's mind, like Evergreen was like chaotic and that got a lot of attention. And so now people really want to go there or people really don't want to go there or like Ivy League. But for the most part, outside of the university, attention is the currency. And so shaming doesn't really work because it draws more attention to them from mm -hmm. their sect or their faction. Well, but, but again, I don't care about the currency. I don't care about the money. Yeah. I don't care about who's making dollars from this. I'm concerned about the intellectual evaluation of these things. I think sure. it's much more important to have people criticizing and thinking about, say, Donald Trump than boycotting him and banning him from outlets. I think that getting people thinking about bad ideas is much more important than trying to demonetize or keep these bad ideas out of our system. Bad ideas are not something to, to want to suppress. There's something to embrace. Look at this bad idea. It helps me show what the right ideas are and show how stupid these people are. It's actually an incredibly uh, powerful force, bad ideas and showing how they're wrong is what academia is made from. So the fact that there are bad ideas out there being monetized by people, that's part of the free marketplace of ideas, you know, right. and it doesn't bother me at all. No, you wish we had a system where the good ideas would always rise to the top and that, which doesn't always happen, but you can't be alarmed at the bad ideas rising up and being monetized because there's no better alternative. There's no way you can have the government or some institutional force choosing what are the right ideas in this realm of public advocacy. Now you can within the university have academic experts choosing what are the right ideas and not being affected by what gets the most attention. And that's what academics are supposed to do. And largely that's what happens. Professors are not chosen for how many Twitter followers they have. They're chosen based on their- Are you sure? Expertise. I don't <laughs> I take real that back. Like, I don't think that's true anymore, bro. Really? Oh yeah, tenure committees are looking at Twitter followers now. Are you kidding? Yeah. You still want to get a tenure track position, right? Oh yes. Why? Well, one of the reasons is that it is a, a pathway of prestige. It's very hard for me to, you know, get taken seriously. I think in some ways I'm surprised so, so many people do or quote me in articles and that sort of thing as an independent scholar who has no economic position. But another reason is it's much more stable financially than relying on your YouTube channel or freelance writing, certainly. But the other thing is it's an entree into an institution that there are lots of, one of the reasons I was involved with Heterox Academy Writers Group is that it's a community. It's a way to be part of a community that can help you further your work, critique what you have to say. Another thing I think it's important is to try and promote free speech, of trying to change university policies, of creating extracurricular programs that kind of promote the exchange of ideas. And it's really impossible to do that from outside the academy, to be okay. part of it before they'll let you tell them how they should change their free speech policies. So I think there's lots of, lots of reasons why the academic approach is desirable. Sure. It would be nice to be able to live the academic life and not have to work for a living and, you know, have a podcast that pays you fabulous amounts of money and you just can do that. I would, you know, I love that kind of thing because teaching is very hard work and I can understand okay. why lots of people don't want to do it, especially for kind of low pay that you get at the adjunct level. I think that 
for most people, including me, academia is the best job prospects there are. And we ought to have universities that are open to people like me that, that try to hire them, people like you that, sure. that try to hire them. I don't want it. No, I don't, I don't want it. Don't call me. <laughs> don't call me. Um, well, okay. So what if you could do it outside of the university? You know, if you could do what you do now, because let's be honest, you get a tenure track position, you got a lot of other bullshit you have to do. You're not just going to get to be able to sit there and, you know, write your shit all day. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not the way this shit works. So mm -hmm. if you could do it from outside, would you still want to in or? Maybe not. I mean, if I could make a fantastic living and get lots of attention from the out outside world, that would be ideal for me to get paid to go around speaking at universities about academic freedom. You know, in some ways that's a better thing than just going to being stuck at one university and trying to do all these other things that mm -hmm. are part of the academic requirements. Sure. There's a certain amount of freedom there that's appealing, but I think it's important to try and change our universities as institutions to make them more welcoming and open to these kind of intellectual debates. You know, academia has given up on me, but I haven't given up on academia. Yeah. Well, clearly I agree. I mean, obviously. Well, okay. So, um, what is, uh, do you know much about UATX? When it first came out, I, I read a lot of the mocking of it and attacks on it. And my attitude was, well, give it a chance to show right. itself. You know, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that universities should come and go. Universities fail and they shut down. That, that's fine. If new universities come and can provide something new and make it work economically, I say that's fine. Some of the aspects of the University of Boston, I was a little concerned about. One of the things was it's a president who was speaking to the media immediately after he announced, but he was talking about, oh, we don't want to have the old system where the faculty choose their successors. The faculty choose the people they're going to hire. We're going to have something different because that leads to stultification that they just hire people who think like themselves. And I'm a little suspicious of that differently because I think it means the president of the university is going to decide who gets hired. No. And that's the problem. There's not a lot of good alternatives. We could all say, oh, there are real problems when faculty get to hire and within their department of who gets to choose who's going to get hired, that there's real dangers of restricting intellectual diversity when that happens. And that's true, but the problem is there are good alternatives. There's not well, a Well, what about the alternative of having interdisciplinary search committees? You know, we've talked a lot about your academic expertise, but I think increasingly with the availability of information, there's no reason we shouldn't be having more interdisciplinary discussions anyways. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary ideas and, and that approach, but even when you have interdisciplinary committees, there's still the same problem of hiring like themselves. And well, the institution itself is going to have mm -hmm. a flavor, you know, just like mm -hmm. any company is going to have a flavor. And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Different institutions have different priorities. They're going to have that. I think it's important to make sure though, that there's going to be protections and that's what we don't really know. How is this hiring going to be done? Basically, uh, hiring celebrity contrarians has been the guy at the <laughs> University of Austin, which is not a bad approach, actually. But it remains to be seen what's going to happen. My field is hypocrisy. It's about people spouting principles of how great academic freedom is and then turning around and suppressing it for the people they don't like. Whenever I see someone with some noble ideal, I think, well, how are you going to violate that? <laughs> 
<laughs> and we need procedures and we need policies and we need guidelines that make sure that you don't have someone at the top deciding who's going to be allowed or not allowed to work. Right. I love the things you say, because as you talk, I'm like, man, John, you're like a walking contradiction. You know, <laughs> I'm thinking about what I said earlier in my defense of not teaching children things like critical race theory. What I was saying was that there's an elitism to academia that only certain people are selected, only certain people are chosen. But I don't actually think necessarily that the best and brightest are being chosen for academia. And so <laughs> I tend to agree with you about this kind of like broad principle about academic freedom. But at the same time, maybe academia is not the place for it anymore because maybe education and academia are training grounds now. Maybe it's not the place, or at least the current institutions are not the place for free thinkers. I would completely reject that. I think academia is a great place for contrarian thinkers. And it's certainly the best hope we have in the future. You need an institutional force, a place where there is institutionalized contrarianism. And having universities with tenure... It's right? No, no, it's not. That's what I mean. That's, what, that's the whole idea of tenure is the idea you protect these people who are contrarians. They can't be arbitrarily fired. And that from that, you can have an institution that is open to those kind of ideas by having even a fairly small number of contrarians at an institution, it has an incredibly valuable effect on the institution. Okay. And you see that places like Princeton, where Robert George or Keith Whittington, and those kind of people, but it's also even on the left, having left-wingers who are contrarians, I think has okay. an incredibly valuable effect on the universities. And then the problem is the structure of the university is changing. What do you have within the faculty? You have the death of tenures, tenured professors, the death of tenure track lines, and the replacement with adjunct instructors who don't have that same kind of protection to be contrarian, who are much mm -hmm. more vulnerable. And you have the university as a whole where the faculty are now a much smaller percentage of the staff than where you have mm -hmm. this vast administrative army that's in some sense taking over the culture of the institution. And, right. and that's what's alarming to contrarianism that you, you have instead of faculty being the primary advisors to student groups, you now have administrative staffers who are teaching them how to avoid, you know, risk management is the word that is primarily used. About. But you're talking yourself out mm -hmm. of your statement that you think but, university is the right place for us. Cause it's like, you're talking about it's shrinking around yes. contrarians and thinkers. Right. And we're like, mm -hmm. the establishment is eating us, <laughs> but yet you're like, no, no, we should still be. I see what you're yes, saying. But like a we, have of to, hope. we have to save the university from itself. That the contrarians need to step in and try and help universities improve to hold them to their principles. There is no real institution that's a better alternative. That well, why don't we build them? Well, it's very hard to build new institutions, as the University of Austin can, can tell you. But and it's probably easier than saving the old trash pile to build new. No, no. The old trash pile... Uh, needs to be remodeled. You don't want to replace it because it's going to be replaced by one of those newfangled condo buildings look horrible. You want to keep the old place and just remodel it a bit and put in some new furniture and find someone new who's going to appreciate it. You don't want to destroy and burn down these institutions. They're incredibly powerful and enormous and they have lots of 
vast amounts of money, billions and billions of dollars in endowment that you can't really replicate with, with new places. And even if you do, you can shift it. Even if you had new universities, they're going to start to look like the old universities at some point. Well, that's a cycle. And that's like how democracy demolishes itself because it's democracy. It's just a cyclical thing. But mm -hmm. I think we're probably both right in that this approach of like <laughs> reform from the inside and revolution from the outside. I often think there's a multi-pronged approach to most problems that is absolutely requisite to fixing them. And I think we need more institutions popping up like UATX. I have issues with UATX as well, but just kind of the way that it's presented right now, we don't really know what's going to happen. But I don't know. I kind of see a brighter future outside of the current institutions and kind of gathering resources from what's around them to create something new, perhaps. But I do think it needs to work alongside the old stuff. But the old stuff is like, it's an apartment building that's getting filled up with concrete. You know what I mean? It's like, there's like nowhere to live anymore. Academia is gentrifying out of its old neighborhood of intellectual engagement and into a new corporate office. And sometimes you want to be able to have a new place to go. And that's a desirable thing to create new institutions. But it's really hard to replicate academia as an institution. In my mind, it, it's far better to try and reform it from within than to give up on reform, burn it all down and try and create something new, which is what a lot of conservatives now are saying about academia. Okay. Just burn it down, build our own institutions and it'll be better off. And I'm not a radical, I'm a reformist. I believe in changing these institutions and improving them from within and accepting sometimes their faults, but not the idea that, well, the only step we have is to do something else. I'm happy that other people are trying to create intellectual worlds outside of academia. I don't want intellectual life to be limited to what academics do. I think that's far too restrictive and dangerous. We need places also for PhDs to go work and to have a life outside of academia because the economics of academia are not working for people with PhDs. So we need to have those institutions, but we don't need to give up on the university at this point. Well, I'm not saying give up. I'm not saying burn it down either. You know, someone left a review on Apple Podcasts was like tearing down the ivory tower. I was like, no, no, no. I didn't say that. I say we're tearing this down, but it's either or, you know, polarization has even crept into this concept, but I think we need both. We need alliances of, you know, on, on all sides of this argument. So this speaks to something you said to me on a call, harm is good. Maybe we're not burning down the institution, but we're taking battering rams to it. Like, is, is that a good harm in your mind? Yeah, and in some ways, criticism, attacks, these are the denunciations. These are the kind of harms that should exist. The university should be subject to criticism of this kind and harsh criticism. I think that's important for the firm. It's important for making sure that these institutions aren't too complacent, too much say, well, we've got academic freedom already. We don't need to do anything. We need to have these kind of critiques going on and alternative institutions develop. So I'm in favor of them. What bothers me is when the critique takes the form of, well, now we need to go after the economics of an institution. It's analogous to an individual. It's one thing to critique them. It's another to arrange for them to be fired. And the same with an institution. It's one thing to critique them. It's another to arrange for them to be defunded and then make sure the government takes away their funding and that uh, private donors never give any money to them. 
That I think is the worrisome element of a lot of the attacks on higher education now, the attempts to defund higher education. But the criticism, yeah, I'm all in favor of the criticism from outside of academia. I like it, John. You're like, fuck with me, don't fuck with my money. <laughs> I like it. And I like that you carried it from that initial argument as it pertains to academic freedom. But I still think that they're becoming one and the same that your money is so tied to who you are in this world. We, could, we haven't used the word capitalism at all in this podcast, but it's inseparable. But to attack you is to attack your money in a sense, with the way healthcare costs, you know? <laughs> well, and the idea of the university is a refuge from capitalism in some ways. It's Ooh. for intellectuals that, that you can have a place to go where you don't have to be popular to have tenure and make money. You don't have to be the most favorite professor with the highest readings from the students who you give the most A's to. That's sort of the ideals of That's bullshit, John. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't happen, but it is in some ways the ivory tower. It is a kind of refuge where you don't have to meet capitalist criteria. You can be a literature professor without having to pay for your salary, in essence, through what you do. And that's in some ways the goal of academia's it's never going to escape capitalism because it depends on these capitalist enterprises, but it can provide a certain kind of refuge for scholars. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think it speaks to a lot of people's mindset about the university. When I was going through this whole process, I was getting my PhD and my husband was still kind of figuring out what he was going to do when he started a business. And the second he started making money, I felt like he was throwing me the side eye. He was like, this is like high school shit you know, talking about academics and academia. And I hear this critique a lot of times from people who have considered becoming an academic, but they find it impractical almost because they see academics as kind of like playing in this sandbox that's like floating in outer space and kind of has no attachment to reality. And I think what you get is then companies come in and scoop up what they can, or the government comes in and takes whatever ideas they can through grant funding and tries to tangibilize all the things that are happening in this like floating spaceship of academia. It's tethered. So I get what you're saying. And I think you're right. There has to be some kind of protection, but I think it's just being bombarded from the outside and it's no longer serving its purpose. Well, the candidate's purpose is to be bombarded from the outside. It's going to be an eternal tension for universities to be at the one sense, serving as an ivory tower in some ways, but also having tangible benefits for society. And there's nothing wrong with the idea of the university as a multiversity of serving many different interests, many different approaches. Again, the idea of the university as this big tent that is doing research that helps capitalism, that helps government programs, that does all of these different things, that helps students get jobs and provides them with training but also has other values that coexist. And there's always the going to be that coexisting is a problem that I think <laughs> once the majority kind of takes over, like this concept of helping students get jobs, that's like the largest part of what American public universities are supposed to do. And also they're not really doing it anymore. So it's like they've assumed this function and now there's a giant void kind of where that function used to be. These things are not like getting along friendly, you know? 
Well, coexisting doesn't mean you're friendly with them. Coexisting just means you continue to survive. You can still have arguments with your neighbors and all this and coexist with that. There are many things going on in universities. And the important thing, I think, is to try and create these structures to protect dissent, to protect the contrarians, to allow for people to criticize what's going on, to do things that are a little different outside of the institutional norms and, and what's within a field. But at the same time, to allow these kind of influences to go on of corporate influence and that you're going to have donors influencing things. You're going to have corporations. You want to limit them. You want to be able for all these different things to coexist. It doesn't always work out. But in general, it, it does. Universities have managed to balance these differing interests and continue to survive. Despite all people you know, go around saying the bubble is bursting, higher education is going to disappear in that. It really isn't. It's a very powerful institution. It doesn't disappear. Universities almost never close down. And certainly the major ones never do. They don't go bankrupt. They just keep going on. That's they a problem. Don't. Well, but that's both a problem and it's part of the way they're designed. And it has a lot of virtues to it, that they're largely impervious to outside control and forces and in some ways that's good that we don't want them to be influenced by whoever has the biggest check at any but they are but to a certain extent they they are responsive to outside influences but they're not completely responsive they have protections for certain people within them certain parts of the university to be immune from these things to provide some sorts of protections to dissenters who criticize even their biggest donors So, you know, it's a complex institution. The idea of academic freedom is that you're trying to take some elements of the way the university operates and place them behind these protective walls. And and to a large extent, that works. Doesn't always work. And it can't fundamentally change the incentive structure of universities or the funding structure of universities. You know, academic freedom, like free speech, it can't solve every problem in society or every problem with higher education, but it does have a valuable role to play and an element to play in maintaining these institutions as places where you can have these diverse voices and you can have this protection of dissent. Yeah, I think we can agree on that. I think we agree on some very foundational things about Mm -hmm. the university. You know, go ahead and go get your tenure track position and I'll be out here. You know, we can keep keep in touch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I but I think we do agree on some principles about this. Um, and I think it's going to take every effort to protect these kinds of things, the intellectual discussions that we're having. And I look forward to the battle, you know, I think it's kind of fun. Do I wish we had more like economic stability and stuff? Like you said, don't fuck with my money. Yeah. Yeah. It, because then we could really spar it out. But also at the same time, when you remove the economic element, it's just play money in a sense. You know what I mean? You have no skin in the game. So I don't know. I'm just, I'm just having a lot of fun and I'm really glad you agreed to come on and talk about this stuff because this is just a puzzle that's never ending and I love it. I agree. I enjoy this conversation. I think that these are the kind of conversations about higher education that higher education needs to have as well as people need to have on the outside about it.
Thanks for joining us here on Neo Academia, where next episode, we'll continue to explore the shifting walls of the ivory tower. You can see the full video of this episode on YouTube and sign up to receive episodes, show notes, readocracy collections, and bonus content straight to your inbox at theorygang.io.